welcome to episode 117 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast brought to you by Donors Trust. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law, ranked number one amongst American law schools where powdered wigs are compulsory. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and host of a series of instructional archery videos on YouTube, and I am joined, as always, by the dancer and prancer of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Gentlemen, uh, happy holidays. Richard, happy – well, Hanukkah has passed, so did, did you have a nice Hanukkah? Um, yes, actually. What, what is what – is, actually, explain to the to the goys here what – I mean, based on the media portrayals, none of my Jewish friends have ever invited me over for this, so you got the menorah. Is the, is, is the dreidel yeah. mandatory, or is that sort no, of a, no? You have to pass a certain degree of intellectual sophistication before you allow you to play the dreidel game, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not sure you'll be able to make it, uh, Troy. Uh, but essentially, yes, you do spin it. It's got four different payoffs: one, one half, zero, and minus one. And the problem with the game, which makes it so deadly boring, is if you come back to all those numbers together, the expected value of any toss is plus one quarter, give or take. I think that's right. Uh, so that. No money ever moves. Uh, nobody – you could you could tell that Dreidel is a game designed for amusement, not for wealth transfer because as best I could tell, there's never been a Dreidel table at Las Vegas. Yeah, you know, I, I was offended at first when you said I couldn't get my head around it, but having heard you describe it, you're right. I got no idea what you, what you said. Well, they, you have this top with four sides on it. One is minus one. One is zero. One is plus one half. And one is uh, one. And so since they have four equal things, the two top ones cancel out. The zero cancels out. So the only thing you have left is that one half, actually. And I was wrong. I think one quarter of one half is one eighth. And so you just can't move any money. I was told there'd be no math in the podcast. John, how about the holidays on on your you're uh you gotta be a Festivus guy, right? That just feels tailor made. I just I just think we should have the poll, feats of strength, airing of grievances, and then to amend the Seinfeld episode, craps. We gotta have craps at the end. It's much more exciting than the dreidel. Or have craps where you throw two dreidels <laughs> instead of two dice. Yeah, well, the, no, the dice has six sides. The dreidel has four sides. Yeah, but then you have two, so you have 12. Well, it, it, it doesn't matter. No matter what you do, you're going to completely get the exquisite trade-off. So you can't have come seven, come 11 um, when you start to talk about the you know, bigger <laughs> you're numbers. You're taking and all the fun out of crap somehow, Richard. <laughs> well, that's my whole purpose in life. No, it is interesting, and we should discuss this sometime. All the games that last are exquisitely balanced in terms of their probabilities. Um, and comp- just complicated enough so that strategy matters, but not so complicated that it's hopeless. If you want to get an idea of what a hopeless game would look like, just take a chessboard and make it instead of 8 by 8 make it 10 by 10 and add two new pieces with a different kind of move the game would be completely transformed and nobody would be able to play <laughs> i have i have one last holiday interrogative before we get to the the meat of the program john i feel like i should start this with john because john is our expert on potentially inedible foods uh, many of which he fancies what? john 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 <laughs> uh eggnog Appropriate oh, for human nog. consumption or no? Yes. I love eggnog. I love eggnog. Although I haven't had any in a while. I think it, I think it might be illegal in California. Doesn't it have like – because it has like raw eggs and oh, I love eggnog. I haven't had any good eggnog in a long time. You got to go back to the East Coast. They don't have it in California. No, wait a second. You can't sell it commercially, but you could make it at home. Oh, yeah. uh, John, I'm just going to say right now, I don't want you making eggnog at home. <laughs> there, there, I'm just waiting for McDonald's to make it. I mean, I, I mean, I got to wait months for the Shamrock Shake. Is where the the way are things you a are. Shamrock now. Shake guy, in addition to the McRib. Oh, I love the Shamrock Shake. There's so many. Who hurt you, John? John, <laughs> <laughs> okay. how right. did you advance so far in this world with culinary taste <laughs> that make me look sophisticated? <laughs> 
I've been to Jewish delis with you, you know. That's I know that. I mean, psych- yes, that's, that's a pretty sight. And every deal. every Jewish deli you took me to went out of business in consequence well, of our true. arrival. <laughs> that's because you kept sending back the soup. Oh, I love matzo ball soup. <laughs> I like diner food, actually. I, I will give you I the following too. deep intellectual question, all right? If you had to go seven nights to one of two places, either a four-store restaurant like Shea Somebody or other, or to a diner, which would you take? Oh, oh, diner. The diner. The yeah. diner. Because you, uh, between the cloying service on the one hand and the excessive food on the other hand, uh, it would lead to an early and unhappy death. So my basic rule about four-star restaurants, or I guess it's three-star restaurants with Michelin stars, I always go when somebody else takes me and pays. <laughs> See, and, 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 and people say that we have no populist credibility on the show, but we all pick the diner. Yeah, I well, go to diners if someone takes me. And it's pays. sustainable. <laughs> it's, it's sustainable. You could go to a diner two nights in a row. You could get a wrap one night and a burger another night and a bowl of soup another night. And the menu is much longer than it is at any of these fancy restaurants. Okay, so, so w- one thing – I'm just going to pivot us as hard as I can into this. One uh, thing that we know is not sustainable is uh, the proclamation – that came from the Trump administration a couple of weeks ago on on immigration. This was where the administration said that they wanted to uh, deny asylum applications from people who came into the country illegally. That basically you would you would have to do it at a port of entry. And uh, we heard from the Supreme Court on this today. I think I misstated this when we were talking about it prior to the show. This was not this was not a, they were not upholding the Ninth Circuit. John, John explain what the court actually did today. Oh, okay. So what happened was the president (laughs) uh, issued an executive order to say that uh, unless you come through certain what are called points of entry legally into the country, you can't apply for asylum. So the problem is there's – the statute says – it just says aliens who are present in the United States may apply for asylum. Uh, On the other hand, President Trump – invoke this broader power he has, which was upheld by the Supreme Court in Hawaii versus Trump, to basically pass any regulations to ban or regulate the entry of aliens from any country for the national security. So a district judge here out in the east, uh, out west here, actually in the San Francisco, uh, John Tigar, he issued an injunction saying that the statute says any alien in the U.S. can apply for asylum. So President Trump couldn't limit where you could come in to the country. So the Ninth Circuit refused to block that injunction issued by the trial judge. That's how it went to the Supreme Court. It's what you call an application for an emergency order to block the lower court's decision from going into effect. And so the Supreme Court refused to get involved. And so that's all that happened. It's not a decision on the merits. It's not a decision on whether President Trump's reading of the law is ultimately right. All it was was the Supreme Court saying we're not going to reach down to the trial court and block, you know, interrupt what the trial court's doing. We're going to wait for the case to come up the normal uh, route. Uh, and the interesting thing is that usually these kinds of emergency orders, they're called stay applications formally. They don't usually generate any opinions, but in this case, um, Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh said they would have granted the stay, what the Trump administration wanted, which means that John Roberts must have gone with the four liberals. The other second interesting point is this was the original case where President that caused President Trump to call people Obama judges. John right. Tartar, the district judge, was an Obama judge. Remember, this provoked the chief justice to say there's no Obama judges, there's no Bush judges, they're just judges. Well, so this was actually that case that caused him to speak out in public against President Trump. So Look, I actually think this is a very interesting case for another reason. Um, this is the identical rerun in a statutory sense of the birthright citizenship situation uh, because the argument that the Trump administration is making is that illegality means that 
uh, you can essentially bar somebody who is otherwise, quote, in the country. Uh, because otherwise, people start to profit from their own wrongs, the same situation that is made with birthright citizenship. And so what happens is there's always the question as to whether or not these general background principles apply in a case like this or whether or not we're rigid textualists. And, and this is an area in which, again, everybody starts to see flip-flops. Uh, generally, when it comes to implications, it turns out that the uh, liberals and the living constitutionalists are willing to go relatively free with this and the originalists are not. Um, and in this particular case, it's kind of the reverse. And I think the reason why it's credible is that this sort of illegality issue is not an ad hoc defense. It's one that's been recognized in countless contexts for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so my view is it actually has a chance of winning. I think I would have taken the case as well uh, for the following reason. Uh, nobody trusts what the Ninth Circuit does, right or wrong. Uh, this is an issue which is extremely important with respect to administration because even though you're going to tell people that they have a right to apply for asylum, uh, nothing is going to prevent the administration from slow walking all of these cases in a way which one might find disgraceful. And so I think getting the thing cleared up sooner is better than not having it cleared up at all. And so if I would probably have taken it, and if not, I would have given the uh, – Ninth Circuit, a very stern injunction to decide this thing quickly on an expedited basis because the matter is too important to be left hanging. John, you know, a lot of conservatives are going to hear that lineup that you mentioned, the four liberals and, and Roberts, and are going to say, well, we know exactly what's going on here. The chief is being a squish for, for political reasons. Is that how you'd react to it, or does Roberts deserve the benefit of the doubt here? You know, it's usually very unusual for the court to grant these things. Um, I read a little differently than Richard, though. I don't think it's a um, just exactly like the birthright citizenship. I think actually what it's really like is Hawaii versus Trump. Uh, if you remember, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion in that case just yeah. last last summer, and it was uh, very similar in that uh, you had uh, two different statutes, one in the immigration law that said you can't discriminate based on national origin, and then the statute – part of the immigration law, which is exactly the one here, actually, that the government was invoking that said, but there's this broader power for the president to make almost any regulations he wants to prevent anyone from coming to the country who presents a threat to national security. So I would bet that when the case actually gets to the court, that Roberts would join with the four conservative justices and uphold the Trump administration because that's exactly what he did in Hawaii versus Trump. But I can see why Roberts might have been leery about getting involved now because uh, if you remember, all of this was done because of this uh, Central American caravan that was allegedly trying to breach the border uh, in the south, you know, in the, the southern border. Mm -hmm. And I could totally see Roberts thinking, "Hey, maybe if we just..." wait a little while and let the case come up normally, which will take months. The caravan, caravan will dissipate. People will go away. They won't be able to get across the border. And if that happens, then there's no need for the case. It'll, the executive order will just kind of vanish, and we won't need to decide after all. Well, I'm not sure about that. By the way, I do think, in effect, that it's not quite the same thing as the other one. Uh, a, there were many process complications that were raised in Hawaii against Trump. Uh, so that the sort of bad motive of the president, I think, was regarded by the majority as having been as it were cured by the extensive deliberations across department that took place afterwards. And there's nothing about that kind of intermediation in this particular case. And it's also under those circumstances, the principle of illegality would not interfere one way or another with the operation of the decision. But I do agree with John is I think that uh, Roberts is himself an institutional conservative and he does not like breaking standard modes for a adjudication and uh, granting an injunction when the Ninth Circuit refuses to give it is one of those things. I do believe there was a case out of Oregon, though, in which I think the Supreme Court was prepared to move, but I can't remember exactly what it was. John will remember. I refuse to remember. John. <laughs> I will there, not remember on cue. Yes. No, there, there was a, there there was there, a big case. There, no, there, there is. is. Go ahead, John. Well, there, there, there are some. There, the other thing that's different, and Richard, uh, you know, is right. There are different procedural differences between Hawaii versus Trump in this case. The other thing that's different is the asylum statute is different because the asylum statute talks about your right as an alien to apply for asylum, and it says 
when you're in the United States and it doesn't say whether you're in the United States legally or illegally. So it's harder for the government, I think, to say, well, the emergency power about blocking all flows of aliens into the country based on national security sort of overcomes that other provision because the other provision just sort of already clearly says once you get into the country one way or the other, then you can apply for asylum. Now, the other interesting thing is if you look at the um, papers and the opinions, I think the Trump administration does have a good, pol- I mean, good policy argument here in that um, the uh, percentage of people who actually get asylum when they enter the country is very small, something like around 15 to 17 percent. And then it said the government said the number of people actually apply for asylum and get it from the Central American countries is below 10 percent. It's a very tiny number. But because you have this right to be released, a great majority of the people who apply for asylum, even though they're only a tiny percentage get it, most of them never show up for their hearings. And then they just, right. you know, according to Trump, just disappear into the country, and there's no way to find them and bring them back. So I think well, actually, that's a reasonable argument to- that there's a big problem to be solved, but – this may not be the way to do it. I mean, this actually shows something else as to why the wall is such a difficult conception. Because as we know, the major problem is people who get in by legal means and then stay after their visas have expired uh, is exactly the problem that we want. And disappearance is the major weapon. So, I mean, there's, there's one other piece of information that came out right after the court spoke on this. It was revealed in the press that Justice Ginsburg uh, voted in this matter from a hospital bed because she had just had surgery to remove two malignant tumors from her lungs. I mean, obviously we, you know, we wish her full and speedy recovery, but everybody's eyebrows go up. There is no person in the country whose health is is more closely watched than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, so, Richard, I mean, if Justice Ginsburg were in a position where she had to retire, you know, because of her health, it's hard to imagine her doing that in the current circumstances. Or, you know, God forbid, she she were to pass. What does that world look like if if that seat comes open and you've got President Trump sitting behind the desk to make the next choice? Well, obviously, the Democrats will put the same kind of full court press that they did with respect to Kavanaugh. And indeed, one of the reasons I think they did it with respect to Kavanaugh was that they hoped that they could dislodge him. And so that if Ruth Ginsburg were forced off the course because of health or death or whatever, uh, they might be able to keep things in balance. Uh, My own view about it is that the Democrats actually are in a weaker position to stop this now than the last time for at least two reasons. One, the boat did in the Senate, they picked up two seats, so it's 53-47, but even that's misleading as against 51-49 because that was actually 50-49 and Jeff Flake, um, who God knows what position he was. So there was absolutely no wiggle room whatsoever with respect to Republican nominations in the old Senate, and now there's a six-boat margin, so it's going to be much harder for any one person to make a huge stink and to stop it. And I think all also, the Republicans kind of expect that if Trump is their nominee in the year 2020, uh, they're not likely to be in the White House in the year 2021. He will keep his conservative base. But the turnout of anti-Trump people will be so enormously, astronomically large. Uh, he can't boost his turnups. They can do theirs. And so what happens is they really want to get these court things through right now. And they want to get all these judges through. And I, I, know I understand exactly why. And I'm quite sympathetic with it. Uh, the second thing I would say is that they're not going to make a a, a, a nomination of a man. Um, there are two reasons for this. One is they're so worried about the fact of false charges of sexual misconduct of one kind or another, which are easier to raise against men than it is against women. And also, I think, to the extent that uh, one is thinking about quotas on the Supreme Court, going from 6-3 to 7-2 this time around uh, would, I think, be regarded as a very, very uh, tricky kind of situation. And so I think they will probably choose a woman. Which woman? I just cannot begin to say. Uh, it's clear. No, I actually, thought you might have been pre-anointing Amy Barrett there. Well, I, I gather. I mean, I think she's a wonderful person. I regard her as a friend. Uh, but there are many very able Republican women judges at the appellate level now, and I don't think the two of them hit it off. At least that's the rumor that came back when they had the interview. They have a very different worldview, I think, in terms of matters domestic and and personal and so forth. And so, you know, she's religious. She has seven children. I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, two of whom were adopted and so forth. Uh, Trump, of course, has many children, but they're the similar 
similarities in. I mean, in terms of what's going on, so who knows who it will be. Um, I don't think there's any obvious choice because the common feature of most of the women, including Miss Barrett, is if they're Republican nominees, they're typically going to be Republican nominees uh, who were put on by Trump himself, so they have relatively short traffic track records. There are a few women from earlier periods like Diane Sykes and so forth, very able judge, uh, but uh, Trump doesn't like her ex-husband. And that's enough to damn anybody in his eyes. I mean, one has to recognize that uh, the great virtue that he has in this issue is he doesn't care very much about it except that it is done, so he delegates it out. But the moment there's some person on his horizon about whom he has a strong personal view for whatever reason, uh, then all bets are off. And he will simply basically do the veto on the grounds that you can find me somebody else that doesn't upset me. So my prediction, it would be a relatively unknown woman who would get the nomination. And I think that there would be efforts to stop it on ideological grounds. The one that I find most affectionate and charming is have you or will you ever be a member of this federal society? If the answer to that question is yes, then you're per se disqualified in the eyes of Democrats from sitting on the Supreme Court. I mean, I regard that as bizarre, but I think that's really what their substantive position is. So let's let's stay on Trump for a minute. Donald Trump makes it very hard to cover everything when you only do this show once a month. So since we've last convened, uh, Michael Cohen is going to jail. Michael Flynn hasn't been sentenced yet, but his interactions with the judge have not gone well. The Trump Foundation is shutting down under a cloud of suspicion. This letter of intent signed by the president to pursue a Trump Tower in Moscow has emerged after the president's team said that he never signed any such thing. You had Jim Comey go before Congress, and it sounds like based on the most recent reporting as of when we're recording this that the Mueller report is probably coming by February or so. So the press drumbeat on all this is obviously really bad. Uh, John, to what degree do you think that the president is actually in real trouble here? It is really interesting. I think if you put all the pieces together, all those developments – uh, what it points to to me is that the only way that anyone is going to take down the president, it's going to have to be Congress through impeachment. All, if you think about all these things you've talked about, either they're, uh, to me, conduct that the president might have engaged in before he was president. And I, I personally, I don't see how you can impeach someone for things they did as a private citizen. You know, you have to commit a high crime and misdemeanor. So for, first, if you if you violate the law, say he took he committed a criminal act, but he wasn't president yet, then I think under the Constitution, what has to happen, and this is you know extensively debated with Nixon and Clinton impeachments, you have to wait till the president has left office. Uh, under Justice Department guidelines, you cannot indict a sitting president, uh, especially it seems to me for things he did when he wasn't president. And so what will happen in that case is that if there are going to be any indictments or liability for the president, it has to be delayed until after he leaves office, the end of his term, or he's impeached. Uh, so second, it seems to me there's not – I haven't seen anyway any evidence that the president has committed any kind of crime as president. It's not so far. Uh, all the stuff, Flynn, Manafort, they don't seem to involve Trump yet. And so uh, if you want to – uh, remove Trump or indict him. It has to be, it seems to me, for things that don't have to do with the actual claim of conspiracy between the campaign and Russia. It would have to be for things Trump did as president, which would namely have to be some kind of claim of obstruction of justice. I actually don't think he could commit obstruction, but people do. If that's the case, then you have to go through impeachment. I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think one. the unfortunate thing uh, that the Clinton impeachment proved is impeachment is going to be a partisan party line vote now. Uh, it didn't used to be, but it is now. And so if that's the case, I don't think you have enough votes in the Senate to remove Trump. And so I think Trump's going to make it through to the end of his term. Now, there might be some political value for the Democrats now that they have the House for impeaching Trump, even if they can't get him removed in a trial. But on the other hand, if we saw, as we saw with Clinton, that only, I think that only helps Trump. I think that's only going to increase uh, his public approval because people will unbelievably start to sympathize with the guy. So I, I, Richard, think, yeah, I agree with that last point. I mean, I think a nice comparison is with Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, when the testimony began, I said, well, she might become the next Anita Hill, a celebrity. 
And it seems to me that that is profoundly wrong and that she is likely to be invisible. Why is that? Because when you start to try to impeach somebody and have to put them for rigorous cross-examination, you have to have a very powerful case in order to make this work. And that what happens is the political climate will be, you know, this is not the way in which to solve politics by other means. So the Democrats are going to A, be unlikely to win and also they're going to have to put the rest of their agenda to a side and they're going to start to look somewhat like jerks if they actually try to make this thing go. So I don't think it's going to happen. Remember, when Kavanaugh was confirmed, there was a lot of bold talk how he too would be subject to impeachment if the Democrats took over the House of Representatives. I think that that's a completely unlikely possibility at this particular point of time. I just don't think it's it's going to happen. The question is what happens when he leaves office? Um, the interesting case on this one is the relationship of John Edwards to Michael Cohen and Donald Trump. And there have been a lot of people who are so-called experts in election law, which I do not claim to be, who said that whenever you have cases of mixed motives, such that the president has a powerful reason to suppress the information wholly apart from his political campaign, um, it's not going to be an election board violation. And this was the argument made with respect to John Edwards. But there are two points about it that I think are really worth mentioning. One is this argument was not strong enough to prevent the prosecution from taking place. What happened is it was an argument that was made before the jury and And what they did was to decide that this dual causation question should have been resolved in a way that was favorable to Mr. Edwards. Uh, So point number one is now Trump can, in fact, be indicted. And I do not think he will be able to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that as a facial matter, uh, it turns out that this punishment is wholly inappropriate. Then when you get before a jury, all bets are off because it's going to depend upon what it is that Michael Cohen is able to say and to make good. Uh, My view is what he will try to say is that the president not only was benefited by all of this, um, but it turns out he was absolutely obsessive about it (coughs) and insisted upon supervising every particular view of what happened in the particular case. The president is going to say something very different from that. He's going to say, well, I mean, Cohen made this payment, then he told me about it, that there was a payment made. He didn't even separately itemize this one. And as part of his general bills, I repaid it. And I had no idea exactly how this thing went. Um, Obviously, these two compounds are completely incompatible. uh, But the president hasn't done very well in terms of the confirmation of his own accounts. Like, for example, on on the deal with respect to Russia, was there a letter of intent? Yes, he said no. So I think, in effect, in that case, He is likely to be faced with some very serious exposures. I think uh, that was the conclusion of Andy McCarthy, whose judgment on these issues I respect far more than my own. And I have not seen in the the back and forth the defenders having answered the question – Uh, about Edwards being a case where it was a jury verdict as opposed to a directed verdict before the jury could even hear the case. And I think that point is clear. Having Donald Trump before a jury is a totally different business if he's a former president who leads all of us in God knows what way. The other complication here, I think, is uh, just as Michael Finn has a son, uh, so it is that Donald Trump has several wives, present and former, several children by various wives and so forth. And one of the things that can happen is that they can be indicted for various kinds of situations, even while Trump himself is sitting. Uh, so I think it was somebody, with a guy who runs cross by Chris Matthews, who made a suggestion that Mr. Mueller, in his sort of mysterious way, is going to go to the prince and said, look, let's make a deal. You leave office and I'll insulate all of your children from indictments, which is the basic claim that took place with respect to the Flynn thing. Well, will Trump state it? Not clear because if you look at the mess that you see in New York with respect to his foundation, there is nothing I think that can happen uh, to insulate the president after he leaves office um, from state prosecutions. Even a self-pardon is only for federal offenses um, if it's allowed to be done, which I think on balance it probably is, though not a very good idea. So I think that Trump is in fact in a in a very difficult kind of position. It couldn't happen to a nicer guy, I think, in terms of these awkwardnesses. I am very much opposed to political prosecutions and impeachment cases, even with respect to Trump. And I go so far as to say, well, as you all know on this show, and I will repeat it again, it didn't take me to get the February 1st to say, please, Mr. Trump, resign and do us all a favor. Mike Pence will do a fine job relative to you. Um, I still feel that particular way, only now I don't think I'm so utterly alone. Okay, well – On that note, let's turn to the other big development from the Trump administration, which is the announcement yesterday 
that Jim Mattis is heading towards the exits with a pretty direct letter of resignation criticizing the president's foreign policy. And this comes in the wake of the president, apparently without consulting really anyone, deciding to pull our military presence out of Syria. Looks like something similar is going to happen in Afghanistan. Uh, John, how big of a blow is this resignation for Trump? And, and what are the foreign policy implications here? Well, I, I think as a matter of foreign policy, it's a disaster. I think this is uh, really withdrawing from the Middle East is letting Iran win. It's allowing terrorists like ISIS to set up shop again in these kind of ungoverned spaces in Syria. Just when we're about to win, it's 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 tantamount to when the Obama administration decided not to leave behind a residual presence in Iraq. Uh, which allowed ISIS to rise, which allowed Iran. It's, a, it's like we don't learn our lessons just when we're on the verge of victory. We basically have wiped out ISIS. We're building a bulwark against Iran there in Syria, and we throw it all away. Um, I, I think it's a terrible setback for our foreign policy. On the other hand, uh, and I do think that General Mattis resigning is a terrible blow to the administration – Although people have been counting down till when General Mattis was going to leave because he was sort of the last one who was still left from those initial uh, people who started out with the Trump administration who tried to stabilize it along with uh, Secretary of State Tillerson and John Kelly, chief of staff. But I think that Trump so far has done a pretty good job of replacing them with people who uh, have credibility – with the foreign policy establishment, at least a conservative wing of it, but are on better terms with the president. So uh, Mike Pompeo coming in as Secretary of State I think was an inspired choice. I think he did an excellent job at the CIA, and he's doing a good job as Secretary of State. And I think John Bolton is one of the most qualified of the conservative foreign policy hands to take over as national security advisor. So I think if President Trump can um, replace uh, General Mattis with someone who comes from the more conservative wing of the foreign policy people, um, but someone who's well-respected, that it could still stabilize the ship. But there's no doubt that uh, the resignation of General Mattis in this way over Syria is a real is a real blow to President Trump. And it's a lot of the reason – for example, that's why I was you know, not a supporter of Trump during the campaign because I was worried he would do things like this, some, that would, he would act impulsively in foreign affairs without thinking it through, even though I'm on board with a lot of the things that he's been doing in foreign policy. But to act rashly like this is well, the re- very reason I was so worried about him becoming president. Um, I know Jim Mattis because he and I are both fellows at the Hoover Institution, and I think he has the rare distinction of being fired by two of the worst commander-in-chiefs in the history of the United States. <laughs> uh, he was fired by Obama in 2013 as the head of Central Command, and now he's dismissed as the uh, defense secretary. And, and what it really does show is there's a kind of a structural weakness when you put people with very high egos and very low abilities in the White House. Uh, the commander-in-chief position of the president has always been understood for the most part as saying, we make global policy decisions. Do we have a war in the Pacific or whatever? And then what we do is we allow our generals who actually know something about something to do these things on a particular level. And what happens is both Obama and Trump actually think they know more about military affairs than the people whom they hire to work for them. And I regard this as so ludicrous that it's almost painful. And in the case of Trump, the autocratic nature makes it even worse. Obama was always willing to consult and to, consult and to take information from one side or another. Other. But the stories are that um, uh, when he decided to make this decision on Syria, he probably didn't talk to Mattis, although that's not clear. It's said that he did not talk to the heads of the Joint Chief of Staffs. It seems perfectly clear uh, that he did not tell any one of our allies that he was going to do with respect to this thing. And then he gives one of his ludicrous treats saying, well, I've always told people that I was in favor of pulling out of Syria, so there's no surprise here. I'm just keeping my promise. Well, it's a 90-degree change in course or 180-degree change in course. Maybe you thought you would do something some other way. But to indicate that this is not a change in anything at all, given the situation, it's terrible. One piece of good news is that all the other nations seem to be willing to keep up this particular fight against ISIS. And we should hope that maybe through the back door, if a decent person is appointed as a substitute or as a replacement for um, Mattis as the head of the Department of Defense – 
um, we can kind of inch our way back into this overall situation. And I agree with John. I mean, the people whom he's been able to get, like Pompeo and so forth and Bolton, have been as good or better than the people whom they replaced. I just don't think that last thing is going to be true. I think one of the problems that Trump has, and I think one of the reasons why he's soured on Mattis, is he deeply resents the fact that anybody who works for him gets more favorable press than he does himself. That's not a very hard thing to do, given the terrible press that he's gotten today. But one of the signs of a weak and ineffective leader, of which Trump is in my view, is that he cannot tolerate excellence around him. Uh, particularly if that excellence gets very heavy positive feedback. And so I think, in effect, the jealousy factor was very much active here. And the rumors, rumors, of course, are always like this, was that even starting in August or perhaps as early as July, maybe even earlier than that, it was quite clear that uh, there was no easy affability, no ready access between um, Mattis on the one hand and Trump on the other hand, because Trump did not like being upstaged. And, you know, I don't think his pettiness knows any particular limit. It's, it's really, it's almost incomprehensible to me that this man is a president. And I say with the same sense that John does, we're not talking here about somebody on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party who disagrees with all of his policy choices. I agree with at least half of them. And still, somehow or other, he manages to snatch feet out of the jaws of victory by always giving bad reasons for good decisions or acting erratically or impulsively or bringing nobody along with him. This is a very sorry state. And I think part of the uncertainty we see in the stock market, which had its worst week ever uh, in a long time, at least a decade, is a kind of it's a, an economic vote of no confidence in the president of the United States. All right, fellas, let me pause here just a moment for a word from our sponsors at Donors Trust. For all the good things about the tax changes going into effect this year, the loss of some of the deductions we used to take really stings, especially if you are like the three of us living in a blue state. But there is one deduction still holding strong, the charitable deduction. And the end of the year is a great time to think about your charitable giving. You can minimize your tax burden and maximize your charitable impact with a donor-advised fund from Donors Trust. You've heard us talk about Donors Trust before. Donors Trust works with conservative and liberty-minded donors all across the country to simplify and protect their giving in a tax-friendly way. You've probably heard about donor-advised funds as well. A fund acts like your own charitable savings account, letting you support the religious community and policy groups you love on your schedule. And it's a tool within your reach. You don't have to be a millionaire to give like one. Don't just be a giver. Be a smart giver with Donors Trust. Download your free prospectus at DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet to see how Donors Trust can help you. Don't wait. Learn how to open your fund today. Visit DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. And our thanks to Donors Trust for sponsoring. Okay, guys, I want to take you to a case that uh, has just come before the Supreme Court on a topic that I don't think we've ever talked about on the program before. The case is called uh, Gamble v. United States, and it revolves around uh, an individual who was charged with uh, legal possession of a gun in Alabama because he was had a gun and, and had uh, felony conviction, and he was charged for this at both both the state and federal level, which you can do under the doctrine of dual sovereignty. But he is fighting this in court as uh, essentially an example of double jeopardy. As I said, new territory for us. We've never talked about it here before. So, John, why don't you, uh, tell us how to think about a case like this. Oh, I love this case. This is uh, not this case, just this case, but this issue. This is the issue of dual sovereignties and the double, je- uh, double jeopardy clause. So, like Bill of Rights says, basically, double jeopardy. Uh, is prohibited. Double jeopardy means you can't be tried twice for the same crime. But there's been an exception in the law for a long time, and that's can you be tried by the federal government and the state government for their own crimes even though it's the same conduct? And so uh, the, I think maybe one of the most well-known uh, recent – not recent, one of the most well-known examples in our lifetimes would be if you remember Rodney King, the uh, beating of Rodney King by L.A. police officers that was caught on video. He was uh, – the police officers were prosecuted under state law and were acquitted, or I think it was hung jury, but they were not convicted. And then they were uh, prosecuted by the federal government for the same attack, but as a violation of the civil rights laws. 
And so there's been this long argument that maybe that violates double jeopardy because you are being tried twice for the same crime. But the rule has been for – I think I don't think there's ever been a contrary decision actually. There was long been in the history of our country that a federal – and state governments are different sovereigns, and even though they prosecute you for the same thing, it's not a violation of the double jeopardy clause. And the example that's usually given is basically the Rodney King case. What if, for example, uh, after the Civil War, Southerners uh, who didn't want uh, the end of slavery terrorized the newly freed uh, – the new freedmen, and then – sympathetic state governments put on these faux trials and acquitted all of them, then uh, people would be left with no recourse. And so – and this did happen actually after the Civil War. And so people always said, well, the federal government should be able to come in and prosecute people who have been let off by corrupt local and state governments. And if you read the Double Jeopardy Clause the way the uh, plaintiffs here, the appellants here want to – uh, you would you would essentially allow state governments or actually federal governments, if the federal government was corrupt and state government weren't, to be able to basically whitewash a kind of uh, a crime uh, because they were sympathetic with the criminals. So I, I think the people who want to overturn the rule have a very low chance of winning. I'm actually surprised the Supreme Court granted this case and decided to hear it because this is a rule that has been in our – Law from the very beginning, and for good reason. This is a very complicated issue. If you actually go back and start with uh, the Fifth Amendment, uh, the first thing to understand is that the entire amendment is always done in the passive voice. I call this the constitutional passive. Nor shall private (laughs) property be taken, nor shall people be deprived of life, liberty, or property, and so forth. And in a case called Barron in Baltimore decided towards the end of Chief Justice Marshall's regime, he said quite powerfully that when it came to the takings issue, um, the clause only bound the federal government that did not bind anybody else. And double jeopardy is actually in the same provision, Amendment 5, as is the stuff. And I think the argument that one could make textually is notwithstanding the constitutional passive, this is only a situation that creates rights that individuals have against the federal sovereign. And so it is consistent with that to say that if there are two parts of the federal system that want to go after one another, they cannot do it. Uh, So you cannot, for example, under current law, um, have a military prosecution, which is federal and then have a federal prosecution with respect to the same offense, but you could have military state or you can have federal state. Now, the question is, do you or do you not like it? I think it turns on the following uh, scenario that you start to draw. One scenario that you draw is that there's simply one government that refuses to do its job and the other one backstops it. And John gave the illustration with respect to the Civil War. There is, unfortunately, a very important case known as Crookshank decided in the mid-1870s in which it was held that after there had been the Colfax Massacre, uh, that the only place that you could get a remedy if you were somebody who was trying to make sure that the white murderers of black people um, were brought to Brussels would be in state court. And this was an election massacre. And so the very people who conducted the massacre occupied all the seats and they naturally acquitted. And under those circumstances, nobody has any patience for that. But on the other hand, there probably a majority of the cases you're worried about the opposite situation in which you have federal and state governments often working together in one form or another. And at that point, it looks much more unattractive. So, you know, suppose you want to talk about an offense against the waters of the United States and you're a strong environmentalist. What you might do is you might begin with a state prosecution that fails and the federal government comes there. But the two governments may have been in cahoots the whole time. They may have shared information of one form or another. They have made a plan. They joined strategy. And at that point, it starts to look very much the opposite way. The difficulty is you can't figure out a way to make an administrable line uh, that distinguishes between these two poor types, let alone decide all the very marginal cases that come in the middle. Uh, so what happens is if you go back and look at the accounts of the argument, as I did on SCOTUS, not that I heard the argument, uh, the exceptions were Gorsuch, who's a small government guy in Ginsburg, out there. So on this issue, the left and right come together. 
But everybody else who spoke seemed to say, uh, we don't want to upset this particular Apple card. There are too many cases in which we have this other scenario uh, where things lapse in one jurisdiction and we have to back it up with another. And so long as that's a a trump card that has to be played in some of these cases, we're going to leave the status quo. So the best guess that one has is it will be a firm 7-2. Why did anybody take it? Well, because the issue has been simmering around for a very long period of time, mainly in lower courts. But I can't recall there being a decisive Supreme Court precedent on this. And as one starts to look at this, it's not as though they said in the oral argument, we want you to overrule Plessy v. Ferguson or its equivalent in this particular area. Is it 7-2 or is it 6-3? Because you did mention, Richard, you were basing that on everybody who spoke. But I believe Justice Thomas has a paper trail on this where he's hostile to it as well. Well, I would not. Maybe be, John and, knows the answer to that. Uh, maybe that and maybe Sonia Sotomayor. I mean, I'm hostile to it in some sense because of the abuse, uh, but I'm really quite torn on the, on the overall situation because I think the other situation is there. Oh, this happens all the time. When you have state attorney generals in securities fraud cases and federal guys, normally what they do is they divide the lot and we'll take these, you take those, and they let them go the same way. Uh, then you introduce somebody like Elliot Spitzer and all bets are off uh, because no matter what the federal government will do, he'll come back after you. And if you have somebody who's always an outlier with respect to these kind of powerful social consensus, then you really want to do something. But then you screw it up for everybody else. So there is, in fact, two fact patterns and no way uh, to get it clean. My view is the chief justice will prevail on that. And his attitude seems to be don't rock the boat unless there's a powerful reason for doing so. So he's willing to overrule, as he did in Hawaii against Trump, the Korematsu case having to do with the Japanese internment. Uh, But I don't think he's really generally speaking, somebody who is going to overrule most cases. I think he, by and large, is a steady-as-we-go kind of guy, um, and he believes that institutional stability really matters, and he's not going to change this, and I think he'll carry enough people along with him. And our final topic of the year is my Christmas present to John Yu, a federal judge in New York striking down a 45-year-old state ban on nunchucks. (laughs) <laughs> on, the, on, the grounds, oh, awesome. on the grounds that they are protected under the Second Amendment. <laughs> now, the, the layperson hears Second Amendment, and they don't think about anything but guns. But is, is this a reasonable reading, John, that it has just as much validity to the right to bear nunchucks? <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say something about McRibs or Shamrock Shakes. But this is, <laughs> this is even better because this could be a new addition to the Happy Meal. <laughs> well, hey, John, I haven't heard your answer yet. I'm well, he's been it it's a to me. No, no, no. It's, Come I, on, you're filibustering, guy. I'm not. It's, it seems to me. It seems to me that the Second Amendment says arms, so it's not limited to guns. You know, I would. I'm just curious, actually, what we would have to go back and look at the original understanding of whether arms included non-guns too. I would think it did. You know, I would think if it wasn't just the Second Amendment didn't just cover muskets. I would think you know the right to bear arms would have included swords and all kinds of things. Um, nunchucks is kind of interesting. You know, that's not the weapon. You know, the non-firearm of choice I would have gone with first. But you know, this is great. So I, I the, what I was actually thinking is, how did they? Um, how did people make? martial arts movies in new york city or do they just not do like i've been watching the iron fist do you watch any of these on netflix all these marvel no. shows? i love these shows they're hilarious anyway there's like one of them is about this guy in new york city it's on netflix it's in you know i'm still in season two and he wanders around new york city uh doing kung fu <laughs> and he, he i mean like how did they film that i guess they must have filmed it in canada or something because nunchucks would have been banned well you know the guy who brought this case apparently he has been sitting on this for decades he's actually a law professor himself no and developed his expertise in nunchucks based on Bruce Lee movies. And the concern in New York was that after the Bruce Lee movies that this was just going to become an epidemic and that street gangs were going to be using nunchucks, and this was what drove the statute. Wait, who is this? Is a nunchuck-wielding law professor? (laughs) Yeah, there's two of you now. Well, I I, I plead innocent to those. Rich is actually in this lawsuit, isn't he? Oh, 
<laughs> You're so lurid, John. I mean, look, I'm going to read the text and then you figure out. Uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear nunchucks shall not be infringed. <laughs> now, I mean – <laughs> Sounds better than the original Klingon. <laughs> yeah, the, the arms. I mean, I, I've thought of arms as being sidearms, to sing firearms, and so forth. In, in I mean, I, but I agree with the sword case. I think is quite powerful. Um, but if you're trying to figure out how you run a militia, I, I think that they were basically worried about things that they regarded as military weapons, and I think they meant it was the muskets. If you look at all the statutes as to what it was that you had to keep, um, the only thing that you see people referring to are in fact firearms of one sort or another and i think the two things tend to dovetail again i mean the interesting point about it if there is this kind of epidemic with respect to nunchucks it seems to me even under the scalia reading of this thing there may be a prima facie coverage but there could be a justification for restricting their use on the grounds that they're not going to be particularly valuable for self-defense in the home and so forth, but they are going to be extraordinarily valuable for various kinds of aggression. Now, I am not aware. I've actually looked at the fatal statistics and so forth, and you know, this is the way the numbers run, uh, pretty much independently of the total level of offenses. Um, uh, uh, number one is guns are about two-thirds then you have knives, which are about one-sixth. And then you have things like, for example, which I think are extremely important to deal with. Um, blunt instruments are an important source of death. Um, bare hands, turns out. And then there's this other category of other, um, which you probably – Other means like stupidity. No, no. Other means like poison. <laughs> That's why for stupidity. Example. Uh, poisons of one thing or another. I'm talking about homicides. Oh, murder. Uh, um, and, and suicide. Uh, I, I'm a, I think that the number of nunchuck suicides is probably pretty close to zero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Richard, you don't, have you ever tried to use nunchucks? I don't know that. I, mean, I, I, more, I can't use anything. People. Oh, I God. have enough trouble holding got to get you on YouTube with nunchucks, but I'm, I'm thinking far more people in New York will kill themselves trying to use nunchucks. Wait, we, may be burying, we may be burying the lead based on the way you asked that question, John. Have you tried to use nunchucks? Oh, yeah. Have you? <laughs> Come on. Wait. Well, I never have. What kind well, of privilege? By the way, there's an interesting discussion. Does it have a C? Does it have a C? Not. Oh, by the way, the, when I, I did Google this, and the first thing is they have a guide. Basically, it went a 37-year battle to overdo this. Yes, um, this, this is the case that we're talking about. Now, yeah, I, I, mean, now I mean, these things, uh, they're two sort of solid things, and there's a chain in between. Yeah. Right? I mean, now, like what's the chain used for strangles? <laughs> I didn't realize we were introducing you to the concept of nunchucks. Anyone is listening, and they want to send Richard. They miss sending Richard a Hanukkah present. Now you know what to order. I'm on Amazon. <laughs> now, as you guys know, I chucks show up at the University of Chicago Law School when Richard gets there. This <laughs> As you, as you guys know, I've been steadfast about not exploiting my position here to get free legal advice. But hypothetically, with this ruling on the books, if I was trying to exploit the precedential value of this, could this same analysis apply to ninja stars? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, that is actually sort of – I'm actually halfway serious about that question, which is if, we, if we're expanding this out from firearms uh, – Hand grenades, throwing stars. Like, where is there a is there a clear limiting principle to this? Well, I mean, it turns out that I mean, Scalia actually did write quite extensively about this in the Heller okay. case about what was covered, and you know, uh, you would not call a cannon arms. Uh, he meant things essentially that were side arms that you could carry with you in the ordinary way of your life. Not even clear that a big old rifle would count as arms, although I think it clearly has to. Um, but uh, it's more handguns, I think, and things that are small. Not even clear that knives are covered, uh, notwithstanding John's confident, perhaps correct stuff, or swords <laughs> uh, are covered by this. But, you know, these guys, remember what the Bill of Rights was designed to do at the time. It wasn't designed to be a tool for adjudication. It was designed to be a form of general instruction that everybody would take into account to guide them in the way in which they passed laws. That's why we called it a bill rather than an act because it was supposed to have a very different function. And then this Marbury and Madison stuff intervened, and all of a sudden the Bill of Rights became a, a, a coercive rather than a precatory device, and the whole pressure on how these things behaved became completely different. 
And, you know, this is the constant theme of American constitutional law. Uh, we have several amendments which talk about things shall not be construed. That's a very odd term to use if you're thinking about Marbury Madison kind of coercion. It's a perfectly sensible term to use if you're trying to advise people about how they ought to think about these particular problems. We think you ought to regard it this, that, and the other way, so construe this term to mean that. I think that's what this Bill of Rights was about. That's certainly the way the Bill of Rights is read and understood in England, including many provisions that are identical in the two Bills of Rights, like the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause, um, which we have in our Eighth Amendment, which is part of the English Bill. Uh, So there's going to be a lot of pressure on this. My guess is it will not stand. Um, I think in the end what will happen is – uh, John, I mean, I'm so not serious. No nunchucks? Are you serious? No, no, I'm not saying no nunchucks. I think there'd be very little power to try to ban them. Until oh, oh, yeah. because it becomes until it becomes an epidemic, and then if it does become an epidemic, then I think the police power justifications would work. I mean, that's okay, well, I just, to, just let me give one my serious point here. Oh my aside God, you have one. Idea, well, aside <laughs> from, I, I think any person should have the right to have two sticks connected by a chain. I mean, <laughs> as, as Richard, you've just, always said that. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but no, the, the the serious point is, uh, you know, Scalia says in Heller that there's this pre-existing right before the Bill of Rights, your right to self-defense in the home. And so he says the right to have a weapon is related to that right. So. It would actually turn on whether these other weapons you're talking about, Troy, ninja stars, nunchucks, I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever kind of weapons you've got hidden in your basement there. They're all basically uh, all things I learned from Ninja Turtles. Yeah. You know, so are, you know, I think the question is, are they really defensive or are they used for office? So like things like hand grenades, machine gun, you know, all those things, obviously they're not necessary for home self-defense. But actually all these other weapons well, that you're talking about in your home. Yeah, the the things that are these are kind of like personal defense weapons. I think do fall within the Second Amendment under Scalia's logic. So that's why I don't have a problem with nunchucks. You can't, you know, you can't like kill five people at once with nunchucks. You got to, you know, you got to get in pretty close. And it's like well, kind of a personal good. defense weapon. So I think actually the, the point of seriousness is things like knives and swords and things in the house and nunchucks are I think will ultimately be okay. Okay, well, I've dragged us into a ditch. I don't know how to get out of the show now. So, let, Richard, let's just end by having you do a party trick. Connect nunchucks to Roman law in as few steps as you can. Well, it turns out that nunchucks, of oh, course. No, no, don't answer. He can Roman. do it, John. He yeah. can do it. Well, of course we can do it. I mean, what happens is when you're dealing with Roman law and you're talking about self-defense, the use of firearms was simply not possible. So the only things that you could talk about would be swords and knives and nunchucks. Uh, so to the extent that you're trying to figure out whether or not the principles of force against force apply in a natural law theory, it's quite clear that there's nothing about nunchucks that takes them out from the general rules that govern other kinds of weapons. Um, with respect to self-defense, defense of property, defense of third persons, necessity cases, and so forth. Um, it is important to remember – see, John, I'm getting warmed up now uh, – <laughs> that it is only the United States Constitution. Yeah, you, you've been cold this whole time. <laughs> yeah, really. Help us. Yeah, no. It, it, it's interesting thing about a constitution. You put a word like – arms into a constitution and it becomes to some extent the term of limitation. If you go back to sort of the classical principles, they're not specific in exactly the same way. And so there's no specificity with respect to weapons. I'll give you another illustration of this, which has really profound implications. If you go back and you look at the English rule in Entick and Carrington about general warrants, which was the sort of the inspiration for the Fourth Amendment, they talked about it in the protection of all forms of property. A comprehensive protection. When it got to America, all of a sudden what we start to talk about is homes, papers, effects, and persons, and so forth. And so you get kind of limiting conditions. Um, is a boat a home? Is a car in effect? Um, if you have a piece of property, is you, you protect the curtilage, but you protect the open fields and things like that. Um, uh, general natural law principles tend to not have as many of these arbitrary boundary conditions of one sort or another. So it turns out to be a little bit more coherent uh, than the ordinary constitutional law. So I think there really is a deep and powerful intellectual connection between the two topics. (laughs) See, John, wasn't that satisfying? Wasn't it worth it? 
Uh, someone hit me with a shamrock shake. Hurry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas. Well, that is Law Talk for 2018. Uh, thank you for another great one. And thanks as well to our producer, Scott Emmergut, our great sponsors at Donors Trust, and our great listeners. Remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes. Happy holidays. We'll be back with you again in 2019. Until then, the fact. Faculty Lounge is officially closed. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, yes. Merry Christmas. And, uh, yeah, to everybody. That even includes Scott. <laughs> hey. I'm the kind of guy who can't stand a holiday, so I drink them all away. That's me. I don't decorate no trees, and I won't eat no potato lockies, but I'll give this old lady's melons a squeeze. That's just who I am. Well, I'll never spin a dreidel, but I'll always throw an egg, and I'll Charlie horse your leg for laughs. While you're singing your holiday tune I'm acting like the town buffoon Whipping out my big white scary moon And blowing up beep your way I hate folks who think reindeer are cute To me they're just something to shoot I hate love, I hate you, I hate me well, I'm a snowmobile stealing, no tears to season feeling kind of guy. This time of year sucks, so I take my nunchucks and make sure every snowman dies. Believing in Santa's all wrong, and Hanukkah's eight nights too long. I hate love, I hate you, I hate me. I love, I hate you, I hate me. Ricochet. Join the conversation.